God enters into the deepest brokenness of the human story and brings salvation, freedom, and release. He doesn't steer away from the dark parts or the deep bruises. He goes right for the core. He enters in through the person of Jesus Christ, and he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He obeys the law perfectly, and he purchases our reward, and he pays for what we have done in his body on the cross. In his body, he paid for whoredom and fornication on the cross. In his body, he paid for greed, lust, and abuse on the cross. He paid for those things so that you can have peace with God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. I love the idea that God enters into the deepest brokenness of the human story. He doesn't steer away from the dark spots or the deep bruises. He goes right after it. That marvelous truth is on full and graphic display in this very honest story in Genesis chapter 38. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 38. This is, beyond a doubt, one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. It seems likely that this story took place while Joseph was a slave down in Egypt which is why it is positioned here. While Joseph was running away from Potiphar's wife, his brother Judah was sleeping with prostitutes. This is the part of the Joseph narrative that never gets told in Sunday school or put up onto the flannel graph, but it's in the Bible, and it has things to say to us about God, about men, and about how God brings men into relationship with himself. So let's read it. And let's try to understand it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. Now, the first thing we notice is that Judah was not very careful in his choice of a wife. He married a Canaanite woman, which his father and his grandfather were careful not to do. Judah sounds about as discerning here as Samson will later in the Bible. The text says he saw a woman, wanted her, and married her, right? He doesn't seem to care about much other than her appearance. And he pays a price for his lack of discernment. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that he married her and had three sons by her. Verse 6 says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that we hear of God putting someone to death. God will destroy whole cities in Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is the first judicial execution of any individual by God 
in the Bible. We don't know what Er did, but it must have been pretty bad. Verse 8 says, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now, as I said, everything about this story seems weird to us, and that is partly because we are not an ancient land-based economy. We are a modern-day technology and information-based economy. And so we don't understand the economic value of land, and we don't understand the vulnerability of women and children who have no claim on the land. Those are some of the important realities that lie behind the practice and custom of what is sometimes called Leverite marriage. In that culture, if a man died without having fathered a child, his younger brother would be expected to try and impregnate the widow so that she might father a child that would inherit the dead father's land. Now, as odd as that sounds, there was a good reason for the custom. In the first place, there was no social security or old age pension in those days. So if a widow did not have a son to provide for her, she was in dire straits. If she had no son she had no land. If she had no land, she had no money, and the only way a landless, husbandless woman could make money would be to become a prostitute. So this custom commanded in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, was first and foremost about protecting vulnerable women in a land-based economy. It was also about protecting the poor. If land was not passed on to children, it would be bought up by rich people from elsewhere, and the land would suffer, and the people would gradually become serfs and slaves in their own country. Now, this, in fact, often did happen in the history of Israel, and it was frequently rebuked by the prophets. So Isaiah the prophet, for example, says in Isaiah 5.8, Woe to those who join house to house and who add field to field. Right? He's saying, woe unto you who buy up all the land from poor families and turn those small household plots into giant estates. So this law, as weird as it sounds to us, demonstrates God's concern for widows and for the poor. Onan, however, was not concerned with widows and the poor. Onan is concerned with himself. You will sometimes hear that Onan's sin was the sin of masturbation. In fact, Onanism in our language is a synonym for masturbation, but that isn't at all what is going on here. The text says, But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So... Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. The focus of the text is clearly not how Onan spilled his seed. The focus is clearly on why he did the how. He did it so as to not give offspring to his brother. He didn't want this woman to have a child. He didn't want her to maintain a connection to the land. He wanted the land for himself. 
But, and here's where his sin gets worse, instead of just refusing to perform the Leverite duty, which he was allowed to do, instead he uses this woman like a whore. And apparently he did it again and again and again. The syntax clearly indicates that this was an ongoing state of affair, which is why the ESV translates it whenever he went into his brother's wife. Onan turned his sister-in-law into a whore. He was greedy and he was a pervert. And for that, God killed him. Take note of that. We, we like to talk about grace in the evangelical world, and so we should. But let us not forget that God hates sin. And God particularly hates the sort of sin that victimizes the weak and the vulnerable. Jesus said that. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If, if you are going to treat a woman or a child like your sexual plaything, then you better expect to be thrown into the deepest pit of hell. Jesus says that in the New Testament. Thanks be to God. Oh, oh boy, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I feel like we've stumbled onto something really significant and really timely. I'm not sure I've ever heard a sentence about someone being thrown into the deepest pit of hell, followed by the exclamation, thanks be to God. But it does kind of fit here. Am I reading that right? Is it good for us to be glad that God will judge and punish sexual abusers? I think so. Now, to be clear, the Bible says a couple of things here that we have to hold in tension. The Bible says, for example, that we should forgive those that wrong us. As Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Luke 23, 34. So Jesus forgave people, and the Bible says that we should forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. So I don't want anyone to hear that it is a good thing to relish or enjoy the prospect of our abusers facing final judgment and eternal punishment. Unforgiveness is like an acid that destroys us as human beings if we hold on to it. So we do want to seek God's help so as to forgive those who have wronged us. But part of how we're able to do that is by leaving such things to the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So part of the reason that Christians can forgive, and part of the reason why we don't have to be consumed with seeking retribution on those who hurt us in this life, is the certain knowledge that God will avenge. He will repay, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nobody gets away with anything. God sees, God cares, and God judges. But to be clear, you're not saying that Christians shouldn't make full use of the law to protect themselves and others from the harm that can be done by sexual abusers, are you? Absolutely not. No. In, in fact, the Bible says in Romans 13 that the king or the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. 
for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's Romans 13, verse 4. So, actually, the Bible says that it is the magistrate's job to punish the evildoer in this life. But the Bible also says that judgment is only provisional. Final justice will be meted out by God directly in the life to come. So it is not either or, it is both and. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that helps me understand where you're coming from in the program audio and where Jesus is coming from in Mark 9.42. Remember, that says, It would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the sea than to face the wrath of God for abusing or harming in any way one of his precious little ones. God takes that seriously. And frankly, as a husband and a dad, I'm glad that he takes that seriously. Yeah, me too. I've got a wife, a sister, a mother, and four daughters. So I am glad that I have a God who takes this seriously. Amen. I'm glad we had the chance to talk about that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 11. The story goes on in verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah is not sure, really, why his sons keep dying, which means he either didn't know what kind of men they were, or he doesn't know what kind of God he serves. Either way, he has not yet managed to connect the dots. What he thinks might be happening is that maybe Tamar is cursed. And so he holds off on having her marry his younger son. And this, again, puts Tamar at risk. Without a son, who would be credited as the heir of her first husband, Ur, meaning the ultimate heir of all that Judah possessed, she was without any income or security in this world. Judah's ignorance and fear put this woman at risk. Verse 12 says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Again, this is all the proof you need that the church did not create the Bible. The Bible created the church. If the church wrote its own Bible, then you can bet that this story would not be in it. Judah becomes the royal line from among the sons of Jacob. Judah is the great, great, great grandfather of David. And then, of course, the great, great in the land of Egypt. Thanks be to God. Of Jesus. So you would think that this story about him sleeping with a prostitute wouldn't be at the top of our list. 
But here it is. Because as we've said before, the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It is the story of bad guys that need Jesus. And boy, does Judah ever fit that bill. This man is messed up. He is ruled by his lusts. He married because of his lusts. And here he sleeps with a prostitute because of his lusts. Judah is not a role model. Not at this point in the story. He is a pervert and he is a liar and an abuser. And yet God has chosen him and God is working on him. You can see that in this story. Remember, this story happens inside the Joseph story. In the last chapter, chapter 37, the brothers have deceived their father, Jacob, with a goat. They had slaughtered a goat and fabricated evidence in order to convince their father that Joseph had been killed by wild beasts. And then they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Do you remember whose idea this all was? It was Judah's idea. Genesis 37, 26 said, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. So Judah deceived his father with a goat, who, interestingly enough, had deceived his father with a goat. Deception runs in this family. And so, God says, enough is enough. I'm going to heal you by feeding you some of your own medicine. Now, the Jewish community has long taught that this is exactly what is going on in the Judah narrative. In the rabbinic literature about this text, the rabbis teach, the Holy One, praised be he, said to Judah, you deceived your father with a kid. By your life, Tamar will deceive you with a kid. So, long story short, one of the things we learn about God in the story is that sometimes he pays us back in our own coin. He gives us a taste of our own medicine. He does to us what we have done to others so that we learn what it feels like. He wounds us in order to heal us. When he chooses people, he changes people. And he does it sometimes by doing to us what we have done to others. God knows how to correct and discipline his children. The story carries on in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this woman, or I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I. 
since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. You see, God is not yet finished here with Judah. There's more work to be done, but it is very clear that he has made a start. He has forced Judah to publicly own his sexual sin and his unfair treatment of Tamar. I'm sure that was humiliating. And the Bible seems to indicate that Judah was, in fact, a changed man. He says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. The text goes on to say, and he did not know her again. This seems to be a turning point in Judah's life. And when we meet him again in chapter 44, he truly does seem like a changed man. But that's a story for another day. Our story concludes with these words. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Rivalry between brothers, a younger attempting to supplant the older. Where have we seen that before? This is a complicated little family. But believe it or not, these are the direct ancestors of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the family tree. And look who we find in verses 2 to 3. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. (laughs) Are you seeing that? Jesus Christ is directly descended from an incestuous sexual encounter that Judah had with a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law. In other words, God chose the most disgusting, messed up branch of the Abrahamic family tree as the delivery vehicle for the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world through that story. His grandmother was a prostitute and his grandfather was a John. Therefore, I'm pretty sure that God can handle whatever is wrong with you. God enters into the deepest brokenness of the human story and brings salvation, freedom, and release. He doesn't steer away from the dark parts or the deep bruises. He goes right for the core. He enters in through the person of Jesus Christ, and he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He obeys the law perfectly, and he purchases our reward, and he pays for what we have done in his body on the cross. In his body, he paid for whoredom and fornication on the cross. In his body, he paid for greed, lust, and abuse on the cross. He paid for those things so that you can have peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is where this story ends. That is our way out of ourselves and back to peace with God. That is the gospel. And this is the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, you said it yourself. This is one of the strangest and really most unpleasant stories in all of the Bible. And for me, anyway, it raises a whole bunch of questions. First off, and I think I know the answer to this one, but I want to ask it anyway, on behalf of the new Bible reader, is this sort of language and subject matter appropriate for the Bible? There's some pretty hard language in this chapter and some really delicate subject matter. (laughs) Should this be a PG-13 or maybe even R-rated section of the Bible? That's a good question. It's a really good question. I think, first of all, if something is in the Bible, then that's the standard of whether it is appropriate or inappropriate. Sometimes I think that we are unhelpfully prudish as Christians. We pretend to be too holy to have these sorts of conversations in church, but we don't mind watching movies that deal in this kind of stuff in a crass way, which I think is completely upside down. I think if a topic is covered in the Bible, then it is something we need to talk about, honestly, in the church. And if a word is used in the Bible, then it is appropriate for us to use that word in our conversations and discussions, provided we're using it in the way that the Bible uses it. So never in a crass way, never in a pejorative sense. But if something is in the Bible, it means we need to talk about it. The Bible tells us the truth about who God is, who we are, and why we need the salvation that God provides through the person and work of Christ. And sexual dysfunction is a part of who we are after the fall and east of Eden. So, yes, it is a legitimate topic of conversation. Well, that leads me perfectly to my next question, because it's surprising how much sexual dysfunction is referred to in the family tree of Jesus Christ, humanly speaking, of course. You would think that Bible authors would want to downplay that, but they don't. They put it out there, and I feel like that's something we should be more aware of than we are. Am I off the mark there? No, I don't think so. It does seem like the family tree of Jesus steers through every single story about sexual dysfunction in the entire Bible. It steers through this story by tracing the line of Messiah through Tamar. It steers through Rahab and uh, the, the story about Bathsheba and David— that is not an accident. I, and as you say, I think that's something that we need to talk more about. The gospel does not shy away from the devastation of sexual sin, and neither should we. Jesus came to defeat that. Jesus came to bear that on the cross, and he came to obliterate that and to set us free from that through the gift of a transformed heart and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Mm, Amen. And that is an awfully big part of the very good news. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.